We had our first real batch of beautiful, warm weather in Alabama this weekend and obviously starting this week. And you had a tweet on Sunday night, last night, that said, Just a reminder, we have several cold snaps to go. Could be close to freezing in a week. And as many thousands of followers and fans as you have, it's moments like those where people must say, James Spann giveth and James Spann taketh away. <laughs> or James Spann's a bonehead. <laughs> um, no, I, I have great – and look, I, the one thing about me is the fact that I've been doing this for so long. I can read people pretty well, and, and I think I understand the, the people and the culture here pretty well. And I know what they're thinking. All these people with the green thumbs, they're thinking, I'm going to go down here and get this stuff, and I am planting it. It's spring. It's here. And I think everybody knows this, but you tend to forget it when it's like sunny and 77 after it's been so cold and miserable for so long. But they plant that stuff. It's going to be just – I expect at least two more mornings with sub-freezing temperatures. So I just hate to see people waste their time and their money. My firm rule is April 15th, tax day. Some people say, you know, Good Friday or Easter. I just like April 15th because if you look at the statistics, the odds of a freeze after that date for Birmingham, it's less than 2%. Uh, we've had a freeze as late as April 23rd, but that's a pretty big anomaly. So, yeah, we're trying to rein people in, you know. And I also remind them some of the biggest snows in this state have come during the first week of April. So it's pretty early to call winter over. Absolutely. And I saw, I think I saw a tweet of yours from either this morning or last night where someone was asking you if this might have been the last freeze or whatever. And I think you said, we're not even close to where we were last year. Right. And if you look at averages, and one thing about averages, the weather here is never average. Those are just averages, but you can use them as a guideline. The average date of the latest freeze where we are is March the 26th. We're not even there yet. I mean, we're not even at that point yet. So it really doesn't make any sense. You, you are playing some bad odds if you go out and think that we're done with freezing temperatures. And anybody that's lived in the state for any length of time, goodness, how many cold snaps have we had in April? How many times have you seen the peach growers in Chilton County with the helicopters and all the magic tricks and the hocus pocus they have to do in April to protect their crops? So it's just it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. That, that's, that one's pretty much a given. So uh, on this podcast, we like to talk about backgrounds and where people come from. And uh, I did a little reading up on you, and I've actually seen you speak where you've talked about where you come from and where you grew up. You said that you were born in Huntsville, but... I have no knowledge of that. I, I don't remember it. It so says I, it on my birth certificates. <laughs> so when did you move? Like, when do you know uh, what age? I want to say uh, I was about two, and uh, my parents moved to this community in Butler County, Alabama, which is called Greenville. When people say, where are you from? You really need to have one answer. And really and truly, that's where I'm from. I, I, I am from Butler County. My culture, the way I talk, you know, the, most things about me, it's rural South Alabama. You were looking at a genuine South Alabama hillbilly here. And I love Greenville. I love it. But we moved there. My, my father was a lumber broker. He sold lumber. And there was a lumber company down at Chapman, which is below Greenville, and he worked there. And Greenville was just an amazing place to grow up and to live and to be a young child. It was marvelous. I cherish the days. So you said the way you talk, and I'm guessing that most people in Greenville don't sound like James Spann today, <laughs> but do you mean things that you say? Yeah, things I say, like we're talking now. Yeah. You know, if you listen, there's a South Alabama accent. Anybody can, anybody from Greenville, Alabama could pretty much listen to this TV slicker and know that guy is from Butler County. And it's funny, every county in, in rural Alabama has a different accent. It's funny, you can go from Marengo County to Wilcox to Butler to Pike. They're all different. And it's hard to explain. I don't know why, but I just, I'm from Butler County. In fact, one of my best friends from uh, first grade and Cub Scouts is the mayor of Greenville. I named Dexter McClendon, and he's doing a great job. But he, he invited me to come speak to the Chamber of Commerce banquet a couple of years ago, and it was like being dipped in healing water. I saw friends I have not seen in 40 years. It was just great, and I, I, you know, I love driving through there. I love stopping. I just love Greenville. In, in Greenville, like you, you've noted, and I, you, you can see on a map, is between Montgomery and Mobile. It's where Forrest Gump came from. Yeah, Greenbow, Alabama, <laughs> no, right. You, 
You ask Winston Groom what he patterned Greenbow after, he'll say it's Greenbow. <laughs> yeah. So did you spend a lot of time in either Montgomery or Mobile, or did you spend most of, uh, not all your time in Greenbow? Most of the time when you went to the big city, it was Montgomery. Yeah. Uh, Montgomery's about uh, an hour away. Mobile is a little farther away. So, yeah, man, I, you know, the big shopping experience was Normandale Mall. That was the first mall in Montgomery. I remember seeing snow flurries at Normandale Mall. That was the first time I'd ever seen snow in my life. And you're from Greenville. You don't see snow a lot. It was awesome. You go to Montgomery, that was like midtown Manhattan. I mean, yeah. you know, I've, I've never seen a place that big in my life. And, uh, that, that was our big city. People from Evergreen go to Mobile. People from Greenville go to Montgomery. It's usually the way it works. Yeah, and your parents, they were from Huntsville, I guess? My mom is from a little town called Asheville, which is in St. Clair County. Okay. She married a man that uh, was from Butler County. He had a job, apparently, in Huntsville, which was the reason they were living there at the time. But he, when he accepted the job at the lumber company in Chapman, that's where all of his people are from. That, that's where all my span people are from there. So that's his home. He was in Huntsville just for a job. And what did your mom do? My mom was a high school English teacher. Oh, wow. Um, it was a situation where... Um, and I've shared this publicly, it's no secret. My, my dad walked out on us uh, when I was in second grade, and it was not a particularly good situation. He didn't say goodbye or I love you or see you later or have a nice life. He just left in the middle of the night and uh, never paid a dime of child support. So all of a sudden in the second grade, it was me and my mom. And uh, she was the secretary at Greenville High School. And she was probably making about 500 bucks a year. And that that's not working even in the 60s, and my mama knew I loved Greenville, and she let us stay, let me stay, and her stay down there through the end of fourth grade, and that summer, when I, after I finished fourth grade, she had to make some changes, and she had to go back to school. She left college early to get married, and she needed a little bit more to finish her degree, so we moved to Tuscaloosa when I started fifth grade, and uh, she would wind up teaching high school English to support me, which is odd, and then I I'm horrible at what she taught. I mean, her classes scared me. <laughs> I have probably a third grade reading comprehension level, and she would teach this stuff. I couldn't understand it, but she would give me the freedom to go do what I was gifted to do, which is more the math stuff and all that. So I never took any of her classes. But growing up, after a second grade, it was just me and her. I have no brothers and no sisters. Wow. Okay, so you and I actually, in terms of how we grew up and the schools that we went to, we have a similar trajectory. You said you moved to Tuscaloosa, started the fifth grade at Old Verner Elementary. Yeah, yeah. I went to the newer Verner. Oh, that which was is, the upscale Verner. That's right, yes. which is still standing north of the river. And uh, you went to Eastwood Junior High, Tuscaloosa High, graduated in 1974. Verner, you know, used to be across the street from Bryant-Denny Stadium. Most people have no idea there was an elementary school that sat over there. There's a parking lot now. now the graveyard's still there. Yep. But Verner was right across the street from the football stadium and across the street from the uh, cemetery there. So, And my old principal, a guy named Archie Hitson, he stuck around for a long he time. He was my first principal. Yeah, I believe that. Sure. I mean, he died here recently, but he stepped in and was kind of like a father figure to me. And he was a very important man in my life. So I'll always be thankful for Verner and Mr. Hitson. Well, when you were younger and it was just you and your mom, I know that your faith is a big part of your life now. Was it back then? Did you grow up going to church? Yeah, uh, and, and I'll say this. You know, church for a child was kind of a different experience uh, in Greenville in the 60s. Uh, I, I went to church almost every Sunday, but I didn't like it. I remember, and this is not true of all these men, but there were a lot of mean men in black suits, and they were racists. And I didn't really know what that word meant at the time. But understand, growing up in the 60s in South Alabama was radically different. And, you know, we, I remember making these guys ashtrays in vacation Bible school so they could smoke, you know, outside. And I think this is just, even a child knows there's something wrong with that. So... But again, I, I made great friends at church, and I'm glad I went. I'm not, you know, putting the whole thing down, but it, I knew something just wasn't right. And I became a Christian when I was 12 after coming to Tuscaloosa. There were some wonderful people that loved us and encouraged us and helped us and took us in. And we were broke and didn't know any. We, we, were, we were strangers in a strange land, and that's where it really hit home. And, and I was baptized at Calvary Baptist Church by a guy named Alan Watson, who was the pastor there for a long time in uh, Tuscaloosa. So. And I do children's ministry today to be sure that these kids at my church don't have the experience I had when I was six and seven years old. And I tell people all the time, you see me in church with a black suit frowning at kids smoking, just shoot me <laughs> and bury me upside down so the kids can have a place to park their bicycle out there. <laughs> well, after you graduated, or I guess while you are in high school, you, you said that some of the most significant events that shaped your 
new intense passion for weather happened during your high school years, including the Brent tornado in 73, what you called the super outbreak in uh, 74. You'd spend many of your days after those disasters as an amateur radio volunteer. Why were those... You did some serious research well, for this. This is good. Well, why, why were those <laughs> events so important to you? You know, I was always interested in clouds and weather, but the, the Brent tornado was in May 27th of 73. I was right at the end of my junior year in high school. And, you know, there were no cell phones in 1973, which people can't even imagine what the world was like before cell phones, but we were it. And uh, it was a Sunday, and there was an urgent call for help, and, and we had a local group always assembled and ready to go. And we were the, one of the first ones that got down there, and, and uh, seeing that changed my life. The darkness, the, uh, the, the human suffering, the smell. To this day, first responders call it the scent of death. I don't know what it is, and I don't think anybody does. I think it's from the pit of hell. I, I know pine tree is involved in it, but it's this odd smell that often you don't get off you for days uh, after a loss, a tragic tornado outbreak. Five people died there, and uh, we stayed down there for three days. And that puts something in me that's still there today. I will always have a bond with the people at the Brent Baptist Church where one man died between the evening worship service and training union. It's just something about that. I was meant to experience that. And, and then the next year, I was a senior, and we had the super outbreak. You know, but people all the time say, I can never remember the weather being this strange. Well, you didn't live in the 70s. I mean, oh, goodness. That was the largest outbreak of tornadoes on record in the country, and it's pretty much comparable to the one we had four years ago. And 80 people died, and they let me off for three days to go volunteer, three days away from school. And my first assignment was at the old People's Hospital in Jasper. And, uh, again, my job was to relay information from the hospital back to the relief agencies in Birmingham. And I don't know to this day why they did it, but they put me in the emergency room at the People's Hospital. And I saw things that I've not talked about publicly or privately ever, and I won't. But it put something in me that's still there today. I had night terrors for uh, several months after that. But I think it was part of what had to happen for me to be able to do what I do today. Um, but the, the, the 73 Brent tornado and the 74 super outbreak shaped me to a very large degree. So you already had this interest in weather. Like you said, you were interested in clouds. When did actually being interested in weather and doing it as a career first enter your brain? Never entered my mind. No human being ever told me that meteorology was a career option. Nobody. I mean, I remember... You know, coming out of high school, they give you these tests you take about what you ought to be doing for a living. The, the two I scored highest on were forestry and funeral home director. <laughs> I don't know why that's always stuck with me, but my friend said, well, there's always going to be dead people and trees around. So, I mean, it's, it's a great business. But in addition to weather, I loved ham radio, building equipment, tearing down equipment, understanding how it works. Got a ham radio license when I was 14, and uh, this was in 1970. And the, the logical path for me was electrical engineering. I, I was a math guy, science guy, just it came easy for me. And so I got off as an engineer. But those events of the 70s just drew me in more and more and more as an amateur, you know, ham radio, volunteering, weather spotting. Yeah, we did all that. So goodness, we, we were doing things back in the 70s. I know now it'd probably get some people killed if we tried that today. We, we didn't have any sense, but we had a passion. And the other thing that happened growing up, when I was in high school, you know, I had to work. And, and one of my first jobs was at a radio station. They called the school office, Tuscaloosa High School, and they wanted to know if there's any kid out there that might want to work some bad hours at minimum wage. And they gave them my name. <laughs> Because uh, we had built a little high school radio station. And uh, so I went out there in high school and worked there through all of these events in the 70s. So I was working as a broadcaster, you know, just a schmuck playing rock and roll music on the radio. But that helped me understand how to communicate a little bit to the masses. I was horrible and had no business doing it. But I'm always thankful for them giving me a chance. So, But no, my first major was engineering, working at that radio station, watching the weather. The combination of being in Tuscaloosa, Alabama the weather capital of the world, and being on a commercial radio station, working ham radio as a volunteer, all this just got in there. And in my soul, I don't know how to describe it, but in, in 78, the local TV station called 
me and said, would you like to do weather on television? I said, what? <laughs> I said, I, I'm an engineer. I don't have any formal training. But they said, no, we listen to you on the radio, and you, you're remarkable. And I said, okay. So I went out there and said, you start Monday. So I quit the radio station, started doing weather on television. This was the summer of 1978. And later I would, you know, go back to, you know, use the distance learning program in Mississippi State to get the education I had to have. But I've been doing this for a long time. Yeah, well, in, in while you were studying electrical engineering, and I guess a little a little bit before it, the WTBC was the station that you started working at, yeah, correct? Yeah, the Big 1230. Right, right. And I, and I read that the first night you started at TBC was a big deal for you. Oh, goodness. And, I mean, you It even, was the big deal. Yeah, you me. noticed, the, I mean, it, what I read was you could remember the temperature of the night, you knew what the first song you played as a DJ was. Do you remember no, offhand what it was? Je Jessica by the Allman Brothers. Wow. I mean, it, and what happened, they really hired me to do two things, to fix the transmitter, because I was an RF guy, I'm a little, I'm an engineer guy, right? and to load tapes for the FM. Now, back in those days, the AM was the big station. All the young people listened to the AM. They played the cool stuff. The FM was, you know, beautiful music. So I was there just to load tapes on the FM and to read some news over there, but they gave me a chance to go on the AM on a Sunday night in 1973. And at my advanced age, nothing in my career has ever matched the excitement and the magic of that six-hour shift. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you, do you still feel the charge that you felt that night? Do you still get it on the air today? Not, not like that. Really? No. You know, I opened up that microphone after playing Jessica, and I felt like the world that I knew, my world was listening. And they were. At night, the station ran 250 watts. You could barely hear it across the Black Warrior River. But everybody on my end of town could hear it, and all my friends could hear it, and all the college kids could hear it. And I, I don't know. It was just a very magical time in my life. I'd worked there for a long time, and I, I was program director when I left, but I, I met some amazing people. Uh, Dave Baird, the guy that does news here, he worked with me. He did afternoons and or did mornings while I did afternoons. I had to loop through that radio station. And the other thing, too, that most people don't know about uh, is the man that owned it is a guy named Burt Bank. Burt was an American war hero. He survived the Bataan Death March in World War II. And I'll be honest with you, he was a very hard man to work for. I mean, he was scary, but every young boy needs a little fear. And I had no father, and he served a very important role in my life. He, he come in that place on you know, Sunday morning. I'd be working a Sunday morning shift, tapping on that glass with that ring. Turn these lights out, you know. He, and one time he told me he was going to haunt me every day for the rest of his life. His finger was about an inch from my nose, but I needed that. And so I'll be thankful for the experience of learning something about, you know, communication and doing weather over mass media, but also for Burt Bank, you know, keeping me under control. Well, in the late 1970s, I know that you started doing a weekend sports anchoring for WSFA in Montgomery. And at the time, you had said that Channel 12's Dan Atkinson was, quote, far and away the best TV weather person in Alabama at the time. What was it about Dan Atkinson? that you admired so much? Well, understand, first off, this is not a knock on the people in Birmingham, but I was in Tuscaloosa, and on cable, you could get Channel 12 in Montgomery and all the Birmingham stations. And at the time, the two weather people in Birmingham, you had Pat Gray and Rosemary Lucas, wonderful ladies. You know, I've never had the chance to meet Pat Gray, and I would love to do that one day. She actually lives in the same facility where my mom lives, but I think she's fighting dementia, and sometimes it just might not be good to meet him at this stage of life but rosemary lucas i work with rosemary channel 13 but they had no training in weather that's not their passion in life dan his passion was weather that's all he did now dan did some other things but that was his passion in life his delivery his style was second to none and i was going to class one day at the university and walking across the quad and there was bob howell bob was the news guy at channel 12 and i recognized him and I just introduced myself, and he's, you know, James, we have an opening at Channel 12 News. Uh, you know, he, Bob talks like that. And, and one thing led to another, and I called the news director down there, and he said, well, I don't have anything in weather, but I got a weekend sports thing. And I said, okay, because it was a real TV station. You know, 33 in Tuscaloosa was very small, and, and that was like the first real TV station I've ever been in before. And uh, I got to do weather a couple times as a fill-in, but I was, I was hired to do sports on the weekend, and I didn't know anything about sports. But again, meeting those people and working at that station, it was a very, very historic station during the civil rights era. And you could put up color bars and they'd be doing 80 shares. And 
So that was a very important, again, I, I think I had to experience everything in my life I experienced, and, and that was a good stopping point because I learned television there. Well, so you resigned from WSFA, then you went back to radio for a bit and got an offer in Birmingham to be the main weather anchor, and you said this was a, a dream come true for you. You even referred to it as a God thing. Yeah, look, you could live your life a million times over, and this would never happen. I was at 12, and, and a guy, WHHY, Y102, Larry Stevens, who's legendary in Montgomery, made me an offer I couldn't refuse. He, he paid me more money than I was making at Channel 12 to go work afternoons on the FM, which was the new hot coming thing. And I had a girlfriend at AUM, and uh, I didn't know what it was like to work normal hours. I mean, I was literally leaving the TV, the radio station at 7 o'clock in the evening. And, and I was just having fun. I didn't even think about my future. It had no interest in my future. Well, I mean, I had an interest in it, but it, it never, I was just following my passion. But in the summer, uh, late summer of 79, I got a call from Wendell Harris, who was the news director at Channel 13, and wanted to know if I'd come up and talk to him about doing weather. I said, ooh, this sounds good. And understand, I love Montgomery. Most people don't like Montgomery. I love Montgomery. I mean, I just love it. But I came up and he gave me an offer, and so I was offered the main weather anchor job at the NBC channel in Birmingham. I was 23, had no formal training as an engineer. It was just stunning. And, and, and it was a God thing. You can't do that. You try and do that today. There's no way that would ever happen. So that started my run in Birmingham. And that was 1979. My first week at channel 13 was the week of Hurricane Frederick, which was September 1979. Frederick was the 12th and the 13th. So I, I was in the station for a day, and then they sent me down to Mobile after that. Well, you note that you were 23 years old with no formal weather education, yet you felt like you were born to do the weather on radio and television. Why did you feel like you were born to do it? It's just destiny. I mean, everybody in life, I think, has a destiny. We are given gifts and, and, and abilities that are God-given. You, you can't learn them. Like you, you look at a lot of athletes, they're like that. A lot of professionals are like that. And I just couldn't get away from it. And I've tried to get away from it. I kept quitting. And, you know, like when I went to the radio station, I thought I'd never do television again. I'd just do radio. But it, it just kept coming back and coming back and coming back. And, and you know what happened after working at Channel 13 for five years? I was transferred to Dallas. And all of a sudden, I was like working in market number eight. I was the main guy, and I was like 20-something. I mean, this just doesn't happen. It, it made no sense then. It makes no sense today. And I didn't even ask to be transferred. They just called me up on a Friday afternoon and said, you're going to Dallas, and you start Monday. And I'm thinking, okay. And I went home to tell my wife, and she went into labor, and our first child was born that weekend, which is just, this was 30 years ago. Soon it'll be 31. But today I would have told them no thanks. And if they would have fired me, I'd go do something else. But it was just not a good time for my family, and I was afraid. But then again, it, the, the nice thing about that, I will always wonder if I didn't do it, what it would be like to be in a top ten market. You know, when when you're at that level, you do a lot of stuff. You fill in for the CBS Morning News and do all this stuff. You know, you're like in this big echelon, which is no big deal. But it, again, I know what it's like to do that. But after a couple of years, we just wanted to come back. I mean, I'm a home boy. You I wanted was, to be back in Bama. I was born here. I'll die here, I'll be buried here. Yeah. Well, so in the early 1990s, you enrolled in the Broadcast Meteorology Program at Mississippi State after more than a decade covering weather, and you said you finally needed formal education. What did it teach you that you didn't learn from experience on the air and in the field? Thermodynamics, radar interpretation, satellite interpretation, climatology, all of this stuff, I was very weak in that. Are these things that were already on your radar, or oh, were you sure. not thinking yeah, about yeah. them? Or? I try and soak it up on my own. Sure. And I would read and read and read. All my nights were consumed so often with reading preprints from Charles Doswell, Chuck Doswell, and the, these guys that are just legends. I would read their, their papers that they wrote. And a lot of their blood flows through my veins today from those days of reading their stuff. And I, I'm honored to call Chuck Doswell a friend today. I mean, he... The fact that I would even ever get to meet this guy is just—if I mean, you're not in weather, you don't understand it. But I grew up reading his stuff. But Mississippi State started that program. It was—and again, it was a godsend. I would not be where I am today without that because it just wasn't—you have to, you know, you just have to have that to succeed. 
and it came along right as I came back to Birmingham. And so I will always be indebted to Mississippi State and the opportunity they gave me. It's only two hours away. I'd go over there all the time, and it, those are like family to me. A lot of the originals are gone, Dr. Binkley, Dr. Wax, they've all retired, but I go back a lot and, and I do anything I can for them because they really put me in a position to be successful today. Well, for several years, you went to Fox 6, where the biggest weather event during your time there, and certainly of my young life at that time, was the blizzard of 1993. And on your bio, you say that it would take a book to tell us everything about <laughs> the blizzard of 93. What do you mean by that? It would take about 20 chapters. You know, number one, forecasting it in itself is an interesting story. Back then, we didn't have these fancy four-kilometer grid models we have today. You tell me I'd be working with a four-kilometer grid one day, I'd say you're crazy as a loon. That probably doesn't mean anything to anybody, but understand, we were working with these, you know, 200-kilometer you know, grid sizes. Which is, but, but by golly, the numerical weather prediction techniques in 1993 did a pretty good job with that thing. And, you know, do you have the guts to forecast a big snow in March? No, nobody had the guts to forecast the amount. But as we got closer, and, and I had a great team back then. I got named Dan Satterfield. Dan went on to Huntsville, and now he's in uh, Delaware. And a guy named Kevin Selly, who's in uh, Texas, probably the strongest team I've ever worked with. But it was an event that I thought was pretty well forecast. Not that people paid attention back then. There was no Twitter and Facebook and Google Plus and Instagram and blogs. You know, we had CompuServe, which nobody remembers. But, you know, so all we had was television and the weather line. When you call the weather line on the telephone, we, we couldn't reach the masses like we do today. But then the event started and uh, we had convective snow. We had on the mountain, we had hurricane force wind gusts, 75 miles an hour. We had photographers lost in whiteout conditions that have lived here all their lives. It was pure white. They were confused. It was in the middle of the night. It was like it was surreal. It was like this cannot be happening. And the next morning, you see these six-foot snowdrifts. And I remember during the night, you know, we, we kept walking out the back door of the studio, which overlooks the city of Birmingham, to see what it looked like. And about 3 in the morning, we tried to get out, and we couldn't open the door. And I thought, some, you know, what buffoon locked my door? It was a snowdrift. There was a snowdrift to the roof, and we couldn't get out anymore. So we had to dig our way, dig a tunnel through this thing to get out to see what was happening in the real world to get the photographers out there. And, and then, of course, you know, we were just shut down, and we couldn't go home. We couldn't do anything. And this was the middle of March. You know, like now, the Bradford pears were blooming, and we had the spring home and garden show. And, but I, I, one whole chapter, if I had to write a book about the blizzard, was the Country Boy Eddie show. The, the, this was a guy that did a local show for 37 years, and he called me that Sunday night, and he couldn't get out of his driveway. So I had to host the Country Boy Eddie show with Bill Bolin. That was the worst hour of local television ever. But no, that, that was the Sentinel event. The, Channel 6, that and probably the... Uh, Goshen United Methodist Church tornado in uh, March, Palm Sunday, 1994, where 20 people died in the church. That was horrible. Well, so this brings us to generally snow in Alabama, a fairly rare occurrence, like you said, a really rare occurrence in Greenville growing up, but always perceived as this sort of cataclysmic thing in this part of the South. What is your personal relationship with snow in Alabama? What's well, a love-hate relationship? Yeah. You know, when it snowed out here a few weeks ago, Walking outside, all of a sudden, I was transformed into being a six-year-old child. I stuck my tongue out, wanted to catch a snowflake. It, there is something magical for people that live in the deep south about it. I can't describe it. People say they hate it. They'll be just like me. They'll be out there trying to catch a snowflake with their tongue. And there's something rather mystical about it because, you know, and obviously for us, it's our greatest forecast challenge. The two greatest forecast challenges we have, it's in the summer. I can't tell you where the afternoon storms pop up in the morning. I can't do it. I know they'll be out there. I can't do it. They're random. And the other thing, it's snow and winter storms. I just bumped the mic, sorry. Snow and winter storms, you know, we don't have a good skill set because we don't have experience at it like, like you would in Boston or Detroit or, or, or Denver. And even if you were really good at it, even if I could go back and look at exactly what happens during a, an event, if I could just magically go in time and see this, I know it's going to happen. Still communicating that people hear what they want to hear. And sometimes they listen to the people in the checkout line at the supermarket. And sometimes they listen to the people cutting their hair. And it's this convoluted rumor mill. And people freak out and they go buy milk and bread and everything. And it's, just, it's a cultural thing here. You know, it's all a cultural thing here. And, and it attracts for us, you know, the, the three 
categories I always talk about are trolls, haters, and know-it-alls, which is fine. It's all part of the what we deal with, but it, it's magical, and it's just a cultural thing down here in the Deep South. I, I love it. I really do. So in 1996, you and several other colleagues, you, you guys left Channel 6 to help form ABC 3340 in Birmingham, your current home. Why was that the right move to make at the time? I just thought it was a good fit. Uh, Channel In 1996, we had this big affiliation swap here. Channel 6 went through five owners in four years. It was stunning. I mean, we didn't, you know, from day to day, you never knew who owned the place. But ultimately, we'd shake out where News Corp, Rupert Murdoch's company, would own Channel 6. And a, a new group came in to put this thing on the air. They took the Anniston Station and the Tuscaloosa Station, 40 and 33, and moved it into one hub here in Hoover and called it ABC 3340. And for me, it, it, was, it was a gutsy thing. It was gutsy for the Albritton family and for me because I left a very comfortable job at a very highly rated TV station, and most of these experiments back then weren't working. If you go to Memphis or Tampa, these little UHF channels that are the new ABC channels, they just didn't work. They didn't attract any audience. But what appealed to me was the fact that the Albritton family, number one, was a family. This was no corporation. It was privately held. They pretty much said, you'll have freedom to do whatever you need to do with severe weather coverage. And I said, so you mean like during a tornado warning, I can go on the air and stay on the air? And they said, absolutely. You have full control. And I said, <laughs> Okay, you know, uh, you know, and so and there were some other things that went into it. And nothing against Channel Six. Some of my best friends worked there and still do. A lot of them have retired, but you know, Janet's still there. For years, it was you know Scott, Janet, Rick Carley, and James Spann. We we were the anchor team at Channel Six. Rick's still there and Janet's still there. But for them to give me that freedom was special. And you know, at first it was hard. We we were trying to build this thing out and goodness, it was very hard because it wasn't ready in time to go on the air in 1996, but we finally got it and it all paid off in uh, 1998. We had a horrible, horrible tornado April 8th. 34 people died, 32 in the Birmingham Metro and two in St. Clair. And we were doing our thing. We were just wall to wall to wall. And my position then is still as today. There's a million channels on cable. If you want to go find something to watch, go watch it. We're here to serve the public interest and needs. And th that's what we need to be doing. And, and it paid off incredible dividends. And that night defined this little TV station here. Well, I know that you, with that and, and so many other storms you had to cover, you, you felt like you broke a lot of ground and you developed long form nonstop weather coverage during tornado warnings. Uh, you mentioned street level radar mapping, a mobile weather center, and again, you used all of these things to cover these events. What did providing round-the-clock coverage for deadly weather events like these teach you as a weather broadcaster? Well, number one, you have to uh, learn that you've really got to be connected with everybody. You can't do my job right during these long-form, I'm talking these hours and hours and hours and hours on that green wall, unless you understand three things, the people, the culture and the geography. And of course, the science, that's a given. You have to understand that. These three things will set you apart. And I learned on that green wall over there a lot of things initially. Number one, a real video stream of a tornado is more effective than a radar. You know, we're standing over there for hours with radar. People just see a bucket of spilled paint when they see that. We've learned that we've got to get live. That's the reason we have all these cameras everywhere. We've learned that people really don't know where 14 miles southwest of Clanton is. But if you tell them it's at Jim's Pit Barbecue on Highway 82, they know exactly where that is. You might not know because you're not from there, but if you're from there, you know where that is. And so, you know, using large landowner farms, barns, barbecue joints, anything that can relate to the people. And again, you can't bring in some guy from, from Denver or Chicago or Los Angeles or Boston to come in here and do this. It's like I can't go to those cities and do it right. It would take me years to learn this stuff. So that's just a few of the things I learned from the early days of the wall-to-wall -wall stuff. Well, you're so specific in your coverage. Like you said, you can mention these buildings and restaurants and places you know people will know, but your knowledge of the roads and areas in Alabama can be pretty scary sometimes <laughs> during, during the broadcast. I mean, during live updates, you will name drop these obscure county roads that I'm sure residents in the area, some of them might not even be aware of them. Do you travel the state a good bit and get yourself familiar with these places and these roads, or is it a result of studying maps? No, I speak every day, and I like to drive the roads less traveled. I like to drive where people live, and if you drive on the interstate, all you see is interstate. So when I can, especially in my younger days, I'd get off the beaten path and just drive. And 
it pays rich dividends after years and years and years. You, you build up this knowledge of these landmarks that people understand and know. And, uh, you know, like the other day I went to Isabella. How many people listening to this show have been to Isabella, Alabama? But, you know, instead of maybe going down through Jemison, you know, maybe I'll cut down through Montevallo and Union Grove. I, I will try and go different ways, even though I'm at this advanced age, to try and find a few roads where I hadn't been and recognize landmarks that might be useful, knowing that next time a tornado comes through here, I need to remember this stuff and know exactly where it is. So, yeah, the, the, the school thing has been marvelous in that, you know, people got me excited about science when I was a kid. I'm trying to do the same thing for them. And, you know, it, it gets the kids excited. I, I get a great knowledge of the roads and the geography of the state. And it's just the right thing to do. People say, why do you go waste half your day talking to third graders 80 miles away? It's not a waste. That's the good stuff. This is the best part of the day is doing this kind of stuff. Well, do you ever stop to reflect on sort of the evolution, the advances of technology that you use? Or do you just evolve with it? I mean, I'm sure that there are plenty of examples of having access to crucial information instantly now compared to having to wait extended periods of time even just a few years ago. What I am, I'm thankful for it every day. I mean, the, the, the two things really in the last five years that have changed everything, dual pole radar and social media, which sound like two radically different things, and they are, but with dual pole, dual polarization we can see things now we could never dream of seeing on radar before. We can see debris that's being lofted. And, oh, goodness, I can't tell you how important that product is. And be honest with you, we didn't know if it was going to be that good. When the product came online several years ago, we didn't know. But, boy, now we do. And those products are just marvelous. So in, instead of, you know, working only in the horizontal or the vertical, you got them both going, and the resolution is so much better. And the social media means you get reports from places you could only dream of getting reports from years ago. And, and, and I can crowdsource if I need a report from McShan, which is a little community in the middle of nowhere in Pickens County, about eight miles west of Reform. If I get on Twitter or Facebook, within 30 seconds, I will have probably 25 reports from people in McShan. And they might not know what they're looking at, but they can describe it. Or better yet, they take a picture. And we can look at it on the fly, and we know... Is there a wall cloud? Are there striations? Is there a rear flank downdraft? All this stuff we can see. So it's almost like this magic, magic. And what we have to learn and what we have to do is how to process this. And it's a little hard. We're like air traffic controllers on the fly. I mean, you got so much information coming in. If you looked at that computer on that green wall, when I see your head would explode. I have to learn how to focus on what's important and to process that on the fly while talking on television. And we're getting there. But getting the information in from social media has just been a gold mine. It's a treasure trove. Well, in 2014, you were named among the 140 best Twitter feeds of 2014 by Time Magazine's website, time.com. You might have the most active presence on Twitter in Alabama or anywhere that I know of, all while you prepare for broadcasts, actually work on the air. How do you manage this and why, you just explained a little bit, but why has social media become so crucial to you? Well, part of the thing is this. We're in the customer service business. We're in the communication business. We're not in the television business. We are in the communication business. And if we remember that, we'll survive and we'll do just fine. Television business model is dying, and more and more people don't read print newspapers. They don't watch traditional television newscasts. We have to find a way to stay connected with those people, and this has given us a marvelous opportunity to do that. So, And if I do something, I like to do it right. One thing about me, I, since my dad left, I became the man of the house at the age of seven, and all I know is hard work. I am not that good at what I do, but I will work harder than anybody else. And hard work does give rewards. And so, the, so and I'm producing products and services all day. I mean, I, I start before five. I don't get home until you know midnight. I stay up after midnight, and I'm typically sitting in front of a computer doing radio or doing the blog or writing products or doing these shows like we're doing here or you know, doing weather extreme videos, I can answer Twitter on the fly. I'm just sitting there. The hardest part is when I'm driving, but and I don't do a lot of it, but with voice, boy, these things know my voice. I mean, they know my voice. And I can do a lot of stuff just talking while I'm doing on the road, eyes straight on the road while talking. And I try and answer every question. And if they came to me, I consider that an honor. They can go to anybody to ask weather questions. They came to me. That's, a, that's very important. And, and I'm honored that they did that. 
and I feel like I have the obligation to respond to that. So if I and I can't answer everyone, you know, especially when the snow starts flying and stuff. But I try. Well, you really engage with people, like you said. It seems like you follow anyone who follows you. You answer people's questions. You retweet photos of sunsets, snow, traffic updates. You've developed this huge following. But there's also the haters and trolls that you mentioned, and, oh, yeah. and you never hesitate to address them. I mean, to many, James Spann's word on the weather is law. But when snow flurries fall at 7:02 p.m. instead of 701 i'm sure you hear from those very same people about how wrong you are oh yeah and you have to learn and that's one of the things that young people ask all the time how, how do i deal with this there's no right answer you know i don't have time to deal with a lot of them i will engage them from time to time if i see them making a blatant accusation that's wrong i'll just you have to have a little sass to do my job you have to be a little sassy you can't be a jerk but you have to have a little sass a little bit of a backbone because you will be under brutal, I mean brutal attack. And the ones that sign their name, I'm thankful for that. The ones that are critical, that's the only way we'll ever get better. Those aren't trolls, haters, and know-it-alls. Those, That's very helpful. The ones that are anonymous, they hide, you know, they're the ones that hide out in your comment section. If AL.com's comment section, that is the haven for trolls in this state. And again, it's nasty stuff, but it's free speech. They should have a voice. Is it crummy yeah but i would fight for their right to share all that stuff but i will engage a few of them but i don't have a lot of time to engage all of them the, the trolls in a little over in a month it'll be four years since april 27th 2011 today how do you remember that day that's horrible um i don't you know there are days i just don't know what to say about that day the, the death toll was 252 in this state and i've said this before and i stand by this i think the death toll should have been 30. the physical science was remarkably good unbelievably good there were warnings for every tornado 62 all 62 excellent warnings and you know the haters and the trolls never point that out the science i think it was the finest moment in atmospheric science in this applied atmospheric science in the state's history but here's what failed was the social science you know, some engineer guy went on into meteorology, and I don't know anything about human behavior or social science. I understand the culture pretty well, but we didn't reach a lot of people groups very well, and we didn't. Something had to go wrong for that many people to die when the warnings were so good. So what it's done, it's energized me to be sure we're better. The social scientists have been a godsend to help us with this. And so I think today we are twice as strong now as we were back on April 27th. And that's the whole weather enterprise, the weather service, all the TV people. We're just going to be better and stronger next time. We, we have to take that bad day and turn it into something good. Well, for years, uh, you made it a point to reference April 27th and other potentially tornadic events, often saying, this is not like that day. But now you emphasize how any weather event like it could be someone's April 27th. What forced you to change the wordage with that? When Christina Heichelbeck died. Christina was a precious 16-year-old teenager who lived in Clay, and uh, she was killed January 23rd of 2012. This was the year after the big day. You know, there weren't that many tornadoes. It's not historic. It's, it's not something, it's not a red-letter day. We don't really think about it January 23rd every year, but if there's just one tornado in the whole state, and if it comes down your street, that's your April 27th. And so I don't answer the questions anymore. Of course not. April 27th type days are generational. We had one in March 21st, 1932, April 3rd, 1974, my senior year, and this year, about every 40 years. Of course, you know, it's not going to be like that. But I, I don't like answering that anymore. And the other thing that energized me about Christina's death, though, is the siren thing, you know. Daryl and Carol, her parents, honestly thought they were going to hear a siren at 4 o'clock in the morning. And Why in the world Alabamians are born with this notion you should hear some magical air raid siren? I don't understand that. And if they were here today, they'd be saying this. You know, they're on our side. They, they are advocates. So that energized us by quit talking about comparing events to April 27th. And to be sure Alabamians understand, if you think you're going to get a tornado warning through a siren, you've got no hope. So I went to, I mentioned this uh, Tuscaloosa Transportation Museum. Uh, I don't talk, know I said that. Talk hope, hope it was decent. No, well, I went to this, you know, it was, it was really informative, and it wasn't too long ago, and you spoke about April 27th, and like I said, severe weather preparedness. You talked a little bit about amateur storm chasers, and you were really emphatic about how it's never a good idea. We obviously saw a few of them 
on April 27th who recorded extremely compelling video of that historic tornado while putting their own lives at risk. And I wonder, do you see any merit at all in people trying to capture that side of the weather even when it puts their lives in danger? Well, you have to look at the, you know, what's the risk versus reward? What's your reward? If you get a million views, you might get, you might, you might get $10,000 in Google AdSense money from the, from the ads on YouTube. You know, what's the risk? You die. I don't know this for a fact, but I would imagine we probably had one or more deaths from cowboys trying to get video of that thing that day. And again, I, I would love to have proof of that, not to demean that person or to, to hurt their family at all, but I would never mention a name, but I would love to have that connection. Unless you've been trained, you've got no business being out there. Car is a death trap. You know, everybody, and, and I don't even like looking at them. I saw a few after it was over, and, and uh, I just don't want to look at them. It's not worth $10,000. And, and let me just clearly say, unless you get about a million views, you're not getting $10,000. You're probably going to get $36.62, a big Google check, you know, where you're risking your life and maybe the life of the person that's with you. It's just not worth it. There are 10 million trained people that are out there that are doing this. And in our state, we got a bunch of very good ones. We don't need them. If you want to do it, come get trained by the Weather Service at the Skywarn School, the ones that we do. Well, you said that you wanted to help encourage and energize kids about science. What if a kid wants to be the next James Spann? Oh, goodness. I wish they'd hurry up because I'm tired and old. <laughs> well, what, 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 what do you think your job will look like, say, in the next 10 to 20 years for you and those who want to pursue it now? I figure I'll work about 10 more years for me. I, I'd, I'm 58, I think you're 58. I don't want to work past 68. That's 10 more years. i got 10 more left. And my main challenge for the younger generation, it's finding out the things we don't know. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. What's missing in the science is humility. There's a lot of things we don't know, and there's a lot of things we can't do. Why some people in my business in science get so arrogant, I don't understand that. I mean, you will learn humility. This will bring you to your knees I'm hoping the next generation will solve some of the operational issues we have with forecasting, with, uh, you know, summer thunderstorms. Wouldn't it be great if it's 7 o'clock in the morning, I'll show you at 3 o'clock where it's going to be raining on a July day? We can't do that now. That's my challenge to this next generation. The snow events, better define snow, freezing rain, sleet, ice, and timing. You do that better. There's a lot of room for improvement here. You do that better. Do a better job with identifying storms that can become tornadic maybe 30 or 40 minutes before they get down instead of, you know, 10 or 12 minutes. So, But on the television side, I have no idea. I, I don't know what this business is going to be like. For those that want to communicate this publicly, the old model is dead, and their challenge in that regard is to find something that's relevant to the audience. They know what the weather is. They see it on their phone. They don't need us. So you got to do something that's going to make them watch. So the suspenders. <laughs> Are they more to you now than things that just hold up your pants? When did you start wearing suspenders? Well, I started, you know, I, I used to be like a skinny guy. Like I was like really, I weighed like 140 pounds. And then all of a sudden middle age comes along and whoop, you know, you, you just expand. It's this gravity thing. Your muscle tone just goes to flab unless you're working out all day. And so I had to go buy some new clothes. So, well, I started exercising and having a better diet, and I lost a lot of that weight, and my clothes didn't fit again. I'm not going to go buy any more. It's going to bankrupt me buying these clothes, so I bought some suspenders to hold up my pants that didn't fit anymore. So that's what started that, and I want to say it was about 2000. It was about 15 years ago. It's just a guarantee that if you lose some weight, your pants still hold up. You know I mean? I'm just saying. It's, it's uh, <laughs> you know, The one thing, I've not dabbled in the really wild ones. People say, how come you don't wear the striped ones and all this stuff like Larry King and these guys? These are just holding up my pants. They're functional, you know? Yeah, they're just functional. Have you heard of the band James Spann and the Suspenders? Yeah, I've heard of those guys. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, goodness. <laughs> when you hear that, what goes through your head? Oh, I'm thinking... <laughs> They obviously uh, had one too many drinks when they were thinking up band names. Hey, uh, maybe. You teach children on Sundays at church still, right? Um, children's worship. And, and faith, Those are my people. And, and faith is very important to you, correct? Yeah, I, you know, it's quite frankly not fashionable these days. I mean, you say you're a Christian in some things, and people just think you're a bigot and a hater, and that's fine. I mean, again, the, the trolls and the haters, the know-it-alls just come along, but... Again, there were some people that had great influence on me when I was young during those very, very hard times. And our families in the state are in crisis right now. 
things you wouldn't believe. The uh, heroin crisis in this city is unbelievable. And crystal meth use and pornography addiction. You know, if I can help some of these kids coming out of these bad situations, then great, because I've been through a bad situation. And a lot of their situations are a whole lot worse than mine. And not all of our, you know, I'm just, that's just some of our families. But obviously, you've got a lot of family units that are together. But just for some reason, I am more comfortable teaching first, second, third, and fourth grade than anything else. That's what I do. So I, I do that on Sunday morning. I wonder, though, as a man of faith and a man of science, do you ever look to God for answers about the weather? I'm not the kind of guy that, oh, Lord, let me get this forecast right. I'm not the kind of guy that does that. I'm not so sure he's interested in that. My prayer is let me be used in the way that you would want me to be used. You know, I I don't even go down that path. There's a lot of mental gymnastics you can play when you do what I do and you're a Christian. Um, And I I do think I'm I'm a skeptic. You know, I'm a I ask questions. I'm the knucklehead in the back holding up his hand. You never wanted me in your science class because I'm the bonehead guy that you don't want holding up his hand. And I do that. To, I just do that. That's the kind of guy that I am. But I think when it comes to, to doing my job and, and being a Christian, I, I'm not here to glorify James Spann. I, I'm here to let people see a glimpse of God's Son through me. That's all I'm here to do. And the only way to do that effectively is to have a servant's heart where you're looking after the needs of the others that you serve more than your own. And I was a jerk. I was a, you look up jerk in the dictionary, it would say, see him for my young adult years. And I don't know why I was like that. And I still struggle with that today. I think we all do is selfishness, but I've tried to step out of that and do things that, you know, make an eternal difference and help other people. And that's changed my life. The little things I do that you don't see cameras and stuff, that's changed me. The people I've encountered, the uh, opportunities I've had, I'm the guy that got the blessing. So, Well, last question. At this point in your career, beyond doing the weather professionally and it being your professional passion, do you consider it a responsibility? Or even if you previously had considered it a responsibility after so many major weather events and witnessing them as a young person and as a professional, do you feel an even greater calling today? I don't know. There's a lot of indispensable people out at Elmwood, you know. I mean, goodness, there's a lot of good weather people here in this market. If I'd Something happens to me tomorrow. I don't even know, notice I'd gone. But I do know there are a lot of people that, that depend on some of the products and services that I do produce. And that will come into my retirement equation in 10 years. You know, do you retire at 65, 64, 70, 68? I just have to see how it goes. But, but no, there's a lot of people that do a great job. It, it's, I'm, not, I'm nothing special. I'm just a guy in the trenches that I think understands the heart and the people of this state, which enables me to serve them maybe better than some others. Uh, there's some other projects I want to get finished. There's a lot of things I want to do and finish. I got some more chapters to write in my book. Some of the ministry jobs, you know, the Trinity Medical Center thing, we're moving in October. That's been an eight-year run. I'm chairman of the board, and I don't get paid for doing that. I just think it's an important project for the city. I love this state. This state has been good to me. I don't know if I'll ever retire from doing things that will help the state. I want to get involved in UAB and help those guys. You know, that's one of my projects I've kind of, I can have to approach it from a from a distance in a way because of my what I do here. But there's a lot of good things happening in this state, very good, and I want to keep them going. Well, people should visit alabamawx.com, listen to Weather Brains, watch ABC 3340, follow you at Span on Twitter and Span Picks P I X on Instagram. My new publicist, yes. <laughs> James Span. Thank you so much. My pleasure. <laughs>